Hey, thanks for joining TJ and me for part three of our analysis of the annual conference that took place in eastern Pennsylvania. This is the, as I said, third installment of this. If you haven't seen the first two, you might consider going back because there are a number of thematic elements that we've already highlighted that there will be a continuation today. It was a, a conference that took place over three days and exposed a lot about, um, well, a lot of common themes from many different annual conferences in the United Methodist Church, but also things particular to um, Eastern Pennsylvania. Um, so as a, a, a general reminder, Bishop John Scholl is their bishop. He also serves in the greater New Jersey area um, as their bishop, and there's a lot of suspicion around him trying to combine those two annual conferences into one against their will. Um, Scholl has a, a long track record of kind of strong-arming things that he wants to happen and then just kind of using voices as he sees fit to justify his actions. So we've seen a lot of um, him facilitating conversation in the body and then speaking for the body and and emoting and uh, controlling the annual conference in that way and then strong-arming legislation through... Um, and is the first episode we did on this where I talked about um, um, different people substantiating a long pattern of behavior on Scholl's part going back to his time in the Baltimore-Washington Annual Conference. So um, he's dealing with administrative issues. It's a, it's, a, uh, it's a denomination in decline, but also his annual conferences are in decline. And as I learned this last week, his conference staff um, is just not maintaining. Uh, for one reason or another, there's just constant tumult and things falling through the cracks. Um, so I, I kind of feel for him. It's, it's a very difficult thing administratively, but also uh, you have to do things. You have to not just do the right things. You have to do them in the right way. And it seems that Scholl has sometimes lacked the patience to do that. Of course, from the peanut gallery, it's real easy to uh, criticize that. Um, we're we're going to put some uh, links as you consider our words here. One is to uh, an article that they published before the annual conference on um, uh, the the stuff that that Bishop Scholl was pushing, and then another is a, a document that he and the leadership there put out, kind of explaining what happened at annual conference, why things went wrong, how it is that that people should um, receive them. So anyway, you're going to have to do that on your own time. We're not going to go through that. Instead, we've got six different video clips that we're going to review from their time together that are just uh, illuminating or entertaining for one reason or another. So um, this is the first one, and I, I forget the title. So uh, TJ and I are just going to watch these and then talk through them a little bit. And then hopefully, our hope as we go through this is it's not just entertainment value, but it's actually something that helps people think through okay, as, as we're going to continue to be involved in the United Methodist Church, what kind of things do we want to have our eye on whenever we get together for annual conference? What are the ways in which bishops or conference leadership can kind of strong arm and, and push things through that we, we want to have our eye on? Uh, we're, we're hoping that this is actually helpful for partic participating in large councils. Um, the, the Global Methodist Church, we'll see what kind of uh, culture that they get in their assemblies, but I think that this is also good preparation. Well, even if you're not in the UMC or the GMC, if you're a part of any kind of conciliar group or process, just to see the ways in which the, the process can get kind of toxic and poisoned or dysfunctional, it's, it's good to understand that before you're in it so you're not freaking out. So here's clip number one. As I recall, it is a... Uh, 
uh, the, it's kind of a debrief on day three of what's transpired so far and and how it is that everybody's feeling about it. So this this lady, according to John Scholl, I think she was the the head of COSRO, Status and Role of Women. Um, yeah, I'll see if I can't pull up that article while we're <laughs> watching this video. Regarding a lack of trust and transparencies, members were concerned that the bishop dedicated an extended time to specific resolutions and his bias in advocating for those resolutions. An example, the strategic direction enjoyed one hour in presentation and questions prior to parliamentary procedure. Additional concerns were raised that the bishop's power and authority rendered his preferences coercive to members on the floor when giving insight on motions or providing guidance for specific language. A parliamentarian might be the correct person to share guidance on specific language. Okay, so yeah, that lady is not the one I was thinking of. The next, yeah, the next one I was thinking of was the shotgun wedding one. But this one, I mean, she straight up makes some serious allegations as to to Shoals' yeah, character she calls and leadership. Coercive. Yeah, for for someone who might not use that word very much, what do you understand the word coercive to mean, TJ? Uh, basically, you're strong arming somebody into doing something you want them to do, whether they want to do it or not. Yeah, yeah, she. Um, Okay, so I think no, this is not Deacon Diana Esposito. She's the next one. So let's let's look at. Uh, I'll I'll bring it up to the screen here. This is um, uh, Joseph DePaulo's breakdown. That didn't look the way I wanted it to. It's his breakdown of what happened on the third day, Saturday. He said on day three things went further south. At the opening of business, Bishop Scholl informed the body that on the previous afternoon, one delegate had grabbed another by the throat, prompting a call to the police who expelled the man from the premises. Scholl rightly declared that such behavior was unacceptable and would not be tolerated, but the incident was perhaps a sign of just how tense the atmosphere was. So I've actually got that clip. Let's see, where is it? This is throat-grabbing report. This is at the beginning of the session... Bishop Scholl reporting on the throat-grabbing incident. Unfortunately, uh, we had to call the police yesterday because there was one of our delegates who uh, grabbed another, or one of our members who grabbed another member by the throat. And uh, we all uh, are passionate about our work. We're all passionate about um, uh, legislation. Um, we're all passionate about our issues, um, but we will not tolerate a, a behavior that is inappropriate. That member is not uh, allowed in the building today. And if the member does try and come, the police have been alerted uh, so that the member is not here. He doesn't really go into it much, does he? It doesn't say like what they got into an argument over. Does DePaulo say it in his article? I don't. No. So. And I, 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 I talked to a, a couple people in this conference. Nobody knows what this incident is that he's talking about. Hmm. And usually, whenever there's something like this that happens, there's a, a thing called a grapevine that information right. passes through, and you find some things out. I, I have no idea what this was. And you notice he doesn't actually say what it was about. Rather, he just says, this happened, emotions are running high. Yeah. So I, I actually thought that was worth talking about, not because it's dramatic, but because I think this fits into a pattern of Shoal emotionally manipulating large groups of people. 
because essentially what happens is he said there was a violent incident. We're talking about things where people are getting emotional. We can't tolerate it. Uh, police are involved. So, so you think he's making like a, a ploy to say you guys shouldn't be as uh, aggressive or mean on the floor because it could happen. This this could happen. We've already got police here. So, so I, I think it's a closing ranks type of thing where he understands people are against him. So what you can do is create a common enemy or a threat that then everybody stands behind you as you stand against it. So, hey, we have some people behaving very inappropriately here. I'm the leader. We're all going to be intolerant of this, and we're going to stand together against that kind of level of violence. And and I'm not the coercive one. That guy grabbing somebody by the throat is coercive. Gotcha. So he's just trying to switch the whole thing off of like him being the manipulative one and getting everybody behind him. And I see what you're. So it's partly that, and it's partly just like when you get people emotional and you're at the head, then you can kind of direct where the emotion goes, how it's filtered. So if on the front end of that day's business, you're going, violent incident, things are escalated, we're going to stand against it, I'm the leader uh, emoting for you. So this is something I've been picking on since uh, the Arkansas Annual Conference when Bishop Mueller was using all this emotional language to justify bad behavior on the part of the body. Um, I, I think this fits in. I, I, I think this is just bad administration. Like, yeah, not, not that Scholl orchestrated the incident no. to some, yeah, just that it, he's using it in his favor. Yes. Yeah. So I, I think this is how Scholl operates is no matter what happens, he's, uh, what is it, jujitsu, where you use people's movements against them. I, 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 I don't know, kung fu it's, or it's, it's, martial right. arts. Anyway, but the notion is that uh, if, if there is no opposition, he moves forward. If there is opposition, he can refocus it so as to continue moving forward. So he knows let no let no good crisis go to waste or something. I think yeah, is the yeah. the ethic there. Let's go back to DePaulo's uh, right through uh, writing. Shortly afterward, the body renewed its discussion on the proposed conference budget presented late the previous afternoon. Delegates across the theological spectrum had reservations about it, and a substitute resolution with an amended budget had been made. Scholl began the renewed discussion by ruling that motion out of order, then stepped out from behind the presider's desk to give a lengthy explanation to his reasons. This was something he did frequently, distinguishing between his role as presider, where he is supposed to be impartial, and at times when he stepped forward to simply have a conversation with the delegates as their bishop. It was a distinction many delegates found difficult to accept. In the monitoring report given that same day, Deacon Diana Esposito reported feedback from delegates, their concerns over how the, quote, how the bishop dedicated and expanded time to specific resolutions and his bias in advocating for those resolutions. Okay, that's the part we just yeah, watched. Yeah, that's the yeah. first, first video. Okay. She also noted delegate concerns that the bishop's power and authority rendered his preferences coercive to members on the floor when giving insight into motions or providing guidance for specific language. So we saw some of that on day two whenever he was uh, urging that guy to suspend the rules. Right, right. So she was just a deacon and giving feedback that people were funneling to her, I guess? So, well, I I think he might have been conflating her with... um, Oh, heck, did I not hit it? Um, There's a a clip of the shotgun wedding, so I'll, I'll call that up. Oh, I guess it was already full screen. Okay, here we go. We still have much to learn about how to play in a sandbox. 
So you notice that gal behind her is the one who just spoke. Uh, on the fir- front clip, that first second. clip, that's the one that oh, I just... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, okay, so clip. she got done speaking, and then this, this lady spoke, and I think this is Esposito. I could be wrong. The image that came to me, my brothers and sisters, as I was praying about the report, was that we feel in a way we hear, we have heard conversations that we're going way too fast in all directions this week. Almost feels like we're being forced into a shotgun wedding. All the way to the honeymoon, but we haven't had the pre-wedding counseling yet. Well, we don't want the pre-wedding counseling. We want the premarital counseling because we want this to work. So hear God's voice on this, please. So yeah, that was, I thought that was a, an unfortunate end to other, otherwise hear God's voice. It, it, it ain't God's voice, it's your voice. But even so, like that's... The larger critique, what everybody was sensing was, it was a shotgun, so we both know what a shotgun wedding is. Mm-hmm. Two people have been sleeping together out of wedlock. The, the woman's gotten pregnant. The father of the bride with a shotgun compels the guy who knocked <laughs> her up to make an honest woman out of her right. and marry her. Yeah. So to use this metaphor, Bishop Scholl has been sleeping around outside of the, <laughs> the right conciliar process, and he has already... Uh, given, uh, 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 planted a seed that then it's their uh, job to make an honest woman out of the conference out of. So he's he's been pushing a lot of reform and and new administrative stuff that it's not their job actually to deliberate. Rather, it felt to them like Scholl in his hour-long discourse with his, his buddies up there was just explaining to them why they should go ahead and bless what he's already decided what they should do. And so she's up there saying... This isn't how good business is done. If you're going to play in the sandbox together, we have a council, uh, there's a process, you need to, to consider our voices, you need to make... So this ties into a, a segment I did on um, uh, uh, bitter medicine, where I, I talked about how annual conference doesn't work the way it needs to work if you haven't been doing homework before annual conference, if you haven't been in connection with each other then you can't show up and make good educated decisions on finance and programming and administration unless you've already familiarized you with yourself with these things. And in a three-day event where a large portion of it is just fellowship and worship and stuff, you, it's really fictitious to imagine that you're going to make an educated decision on these things. I think Scholl's okay with that. He'll just say, yeah, just vote into place what I want. You know, yeah. I'm the one doing the, I'm the full-time employee. You do what I want. Well, and I've noticed with the Oklahoma annual conference, um, that it's like people just get together and well, we've put all these people in leadership and they've decided what we're going to do. So we're just going to vote on what they want to do because, you know, we, we trust them. We don't really know them, but we know that they're in leadership and uh, whatever they say is good to go. We're just going to, we're just here to push a button. Yeah. Let it go through. Yeah, there's so uh, w- the progressive political movement that began in the late 19th century, one of its presuppositions, and it's been victorious in America, is we need experts. And in any given field, you have experts, and they're the ones that it's it's not your job to understand them. It's your job to just do what they say. Right. And so the, the previous understandings of democratic or conciliar rule are – Everybody needs to do the hard work of understanding things. 
but progressivism says, nope, there's too much to understand. We need experts. We need people who specialize. And then we need to collaboratively work together to prop our experts up. And that seems to be the presuppositions of a lot of conference leadership where we're the full-time staff. We're the ones doing this hard connectional work. We're the ones doing the research. You're doing the local church thing. It's your job to get together and confirm and affirm what we're doing. Send us money, pay yeah. our bills. Let and, us do the hard work. Yeah. You do your thing in your small town. and Well, they'll say, you have really hard work yeah. to do too. You have very, We have hard work. You have hard work. We support you. You support us. And that's disingenuous. That's just not how, especially in a dysfunctional environment like the United Methodist Church, I mean, you need a lot of trust in a system like that to say, okay, I trust you. You're the expert. Even though you're asking hard things of me, I'll give it to you because I trust you. At this point, that trust has been broken time and time again. They don't have a right to ask for that trust, and yet, time and time again, they do, and then they get angry when you go, no. Well, we played that that clip uh, last time where the guy said, we don't trust you, Bishop oh, Scholl. Yeah, yeah. So when you have something flat out like that, and then the leadership continues to operate under the assumption that these people trust us and should trust us, then that's there comes a point, I'm sure you've never had uh, a, a situation, well, I'm sure you have, when you're talking with someone and there's a disagreement and they're just not listening and you do your best to help them understand you and they just pick right up where they left off right, like you yeah, never even yeah. and that seems to be the kind of leadership that they've got in this annual conference um okay so there was another clip that kind of fit into this where there was a woman who had been trying to speak for three days she finally was given her moment of personal privilege i've been told this woman is actually a progressive liberal but uh, one of the things that, that uh, I, I heard from somebody is effectively conservatives and liberals got all united on one page against, against the leadership Shul, of the yeah. conference because of how he was strong-arming things through. So here we go. Amy Banka, Hopewell. Bishop, I have stood to speak four times since yesterday and have been denied until now. I would like to be received with equity. On Thursday, you invited us to share our hopes and concerns. And so today, with respect and grace, I offer this. I am not afraid of change. Over the last 20 years, I have been a leader of change in the local church and this annual conference. During the pandemic, I've been blessed to serve on a church and pastoral staff that innovates, pivots, and grows. We do not fear change. We know it needs to happen, not just for survival, but so that we'll be faithful to our commitment to Jesus Christ. Some of us do fear change but many of us do not. We live in the realm of possibility, and yet we also know that change brings loss and involves people. It requires honesty and a kindness that lasts longer than sessions and speeches. It requires an understanding of and appreciation for the people involved. It requires the kind of change management that discusses first and then acts that meets around tables and not behind closed doors. When it is done differently, people inevitably feel unseen and unheard. The method matters. We've talked a lot about the pace, but I am talking about the method. It matters. And so with the utmost respect and desire to succeed together, I want to acknowledge that many of us do not fear change but we lament feeling those difficult feelings after many years of good service. We lament an affiliation merger in which our names remain unknown and our gifts underutilized. Hear our grief. We lament statements and actions that insinuate that the best thing we have to offer 
Greater New Jersey is our newspaper. Hear our grief. We lament the absence of EPA preachers, musicians, and leaders from our annual conference at this annual conference. Hear our grief. We know we need to change. We want a holy change, but we want one in which we are included and not replaced or displaced, where our gifts and experience is valued and not dismissed, where our voices are heard and not silenced, where we are part of the adventure and not inheritors of someone else's. The method matters. Bishop, we wanna be part of a change that honors the spirit and ministry of Jesus Christ, one that honors the way Jesus loved and acknowledged the dignity of others, one that honors the respectful guidelines for communications we learned about earlier. We want to change and we want to have ownership and participation in it. And when we see an effort that does that, we will be ready to support it. The method matters. May my words and spirit be a blessing to you, Jesus. So yeah, he mutes the microphone while people are clapping. Apparently there was a lot of public sentiment in favor of that, okay. So she's just roundly critiqued him and his leadership style. Thank you very much. We understand, we hear, we are working to understand. We will continue to work to ensure that people's voices are heard. So I just find it really strange that he's operating in the first person plural when it's almost certainly a critique of him personally. So we, 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 yeah. we're doing this. And of course he's, he's- We're doing the work, we're putting in the work. There's still work to be done, but it's just that same, same line that everybody uses. You need to do the work to figure this out. Let, still doing it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna finish this here, here. And that people have input into the process. I do wanna say on behalf of those who have been working on this, that they have been meeting with the groups that you have elected to represent you. They have held information sessions uh, in which people could come and participate. Uh, what I'm hearing is that's not enough. So we will work toward um, employing some other ways of receiving your input and helping everyone to feel a part of the process. So uh, the tone of his response is so formal that I find it off-putting and kind of tone deaf. The use of first-person plural rather than, hey, there, there's no, I, I would have had him say, I, I'm sorry, I thought I was doing a good job, including you guys. What he essentially said is, we, we've done everything we can, I think. We've included your yeah. representatives. We've had information sessions. We've done things outside of annual conference to equip you. So it's frustrating. I can tell you're frustrated. Here's how I would say it. I would say, I can tell you're frustrated, but you need to understand I'm frustrated too because I've tried to use all of the machinery to equip you guys to show up in an informed fashion and know what we're doing here. And I hear you saying you're not informed and you're putting it on me. I'm not sure I'm to blame. Uh, you know, I, I think I've done everything that I can. You say you're waiting on 
good leadership that includes you, what else can I possibly do to include you? Uh, what are you thinking? That is, I, I I actually feel for Shoal in this. Well, yeah, I mean, to be fair, like what what exactly are they wanting? Like I, I don't know. They said they're the elected officials that uh, that they elected. Um, he, he's spoken with them and involved them. I don't know what that entails. Like mm-hmm. <clears throat> they they set up a process to combine these two conferences and then had churches elect officials, or is he just saying like the elected officials like the conference staff elected officials, like, which aren't so no, it elected. would be so. What I assume is so that every every conference has elected its own representatives to general conference and jurisdictional conference. They are the ones that represent the whole annual conference to larger bodies. Right, and then well, so okay. Uh, so is is the combining of two conferences is that a, a he's general not, conference issue? Or? I'm I'm pretty sure that he is not trying to combine annual conferences. He's he's trying to affiliate them. Here I'm gonna. The affiliated? No, 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 no. Oh, there's only one match. Um, he, he's not trying to combine them. He's trying to like make it so that they are utilizing each other's resources more effectively. Because there's no point in reinventing the wheel if one has musculature that can be used for the good of the other. Let's have a collaborative. But it, it, one of the things that she said is it's insulting that the only thing we have to offer the New Jersey annual conference is our newsletter or something like that. And so he's wanting to use some of their... Well, if he's just like essentially firing all of their staff or getting rid of all of their staff and then using the staff for the other conference... I'm like not sure he is firing them. I think they might be quitting because they don't like all the change. I mean, that's just well, conjecture on my part. I mean, even then, like quitting and not... not hiring anybody new and just using the staff for the other conferences, essentially like combining them, but not combine, like combining them in all but name. No, well, mm, I mean, I understand why someone would say that, but if you're in two different locations, responsive, responsive to two different bodies being paid by two different budgets, yes, you have one boss over you that is helping you collaborate. And but even pushing their agenda and, and whatever he wants to do. Yeah, that would be, okay, so if it were a different bishop, I would be more optimistic about there being a maintaining of separate culture. But this is also one of the big issues is um, how much, this is what we've been dealing with in the conversations around race. There's a lot of concern with integration that culture is going to be lost because that's what happens when different people get together is they lose their norms of the past, and so right. she's or they saying, create a new culture. But anyways, that's a that's well. A of course, a new culture is formed naturally. I mean, yeah. no, it's, it's old culture is left. A new culture is right. formed by virtue of the new personalities and circumstance. So she's saying we're not afraid of change. We will change. But the reality is, everybody is aware that with change comes a loss and a gain. And what are we going to lose and what are we going to gain? That's the real conversation here. That is not clear to the people. Is we're clear that we're losing independence. We're clear that we are going to be relying on other people for things that we had direct people responsible for. We're not sure what we're gaining from it other than it ties into the finance piece. Like, we've got less money coming in. Maybe this is fiscally savvy, but it's going to come at a cost, and let's talk about that. seems like there's been a reluctance to talk about it. I've got on the, the overlay here this article that I think these are the people he's talking about that he has included in the loop as to these changes being made. This room full of people here... Um, this is the, well, no, this is the staff. Okay. So I, I don't know who it is. The, the, the people that he says he's been 
consulting their representatives. But I don't think he's lying. I don't think he could get away with lying on this level. So I, I suspect that he's he's got a real problem. He's got a real solution. He knows that the cost is too high for a lot of people to stomach. And yeah. I, I think that's what this woman is speaking to is we're we're trying to just shove this thing through when there are clearly some costs associated that with it that we're not coming to terms with culturally. And then the place the conference ends is with the fiscal costs. They couldn't pass a budget together. So no, they didn't ever actually. No, they couldn't well, do it. They, right. they have to call another conference this year to pass the budget because they just couldn't do it. The, the next clip that I have is um, um, what DePaulo was already talking about in his article, how um, uh, Shull would dip in and out of his presider role. And so right. uh, we, we heard that first clip, that lady actually attacked that practice. This is after that when he gets up and explains why. When you see me move away from the presiding table, I'm outside my presiding role. When I'm sitting at the presiding table, that's when I'm presiding. So that's a, an important distinction sometimes. It may seem subtle, but it's an important distinction that as a presider, I preside over, I work with what the body wants to do. When I'm out here sitting in a chair, I am your bishop having a conversation with you. Uh, I've got thoughts, but I'm going to defer to you to, to share what thoughts you got. I was just going to say, there's need to stop having the bishops preside over an elected parliamentarian. That's... Yeah, it. well, okay, so why, though? Why, why is that not an acceptable thing well, to do? Well, because the bishop is going to be... Um, he, he's going to have his own agenda, obviously. Whichever bishop, everybody's going to have their own agenda. If, if you get together and elect uh, some... Even though you say they're going to be nonpartisan, they're going to be they're going to have their own opinions. But if their job is just to say, "Okay, you can do this," that's mm -hmm. what the rules say. You can't do this. Um, I feel like that's probably a better option than having somebody who's leading the conference mm -hmm. and has all of these. Okay, we need to go this way. Let's kind of like orchestrate it the way that I want to, like Shoals doing. It just seems like there is less of a chance for as much interference. There's going to be some interference and some um, bleed through of opinion, but not as much, I feel like, as a, a bishop would. That's my I think, opinion. So what I I don't disagree with you at all. I would say it, it, exp it shows a real lack of self-understanding to imagine that you can go between in and out of a, a dispassionate, objective mindset right. and a pastoral, invested mindset, and based on literally if you're sitting or standing and where you're sitting and standing. Yeah. So there's an episode of The Office where Andy is boss for a little bit, and uh, he's got to be mean to him, and so he has a hat he puts on. He says, this is my heart hat, and yeah. it has a picture of a butt on the front, and then he he's trying to hop in and out of this role, but it's in a comedy show because we know it's ridiculous for people to be right. acting schizophrenic in that way. I'm the presider. I am dispassionate. I'm your bishop. I'm loving you. Yeah. You know, that that's it's not a real way to be in relationship. It's so phony and schizophrenic is the word that I said. But also to imagine that a body can hop in and out of those personalities with you and go, okay, he's standing right now. He's in pastor mode. So we can we can push back in this way, but not in this way. Yeah. That's a very fictitious way of imagining group relationship and that people are gonna go through your schizophrenic episode with you that way. That's just really silly. Um, but secondly, okay, within 
mainline culture, the Bible saying something is not enough. You have to have some new theory for justifying it. So around sexual ethics, one of the things they talk about is power dynamics. And so they'll say, as a pastor, there are certain ways you just cannot interact with people because of the differential and power dynamics. And I think some of that is kind of silly and overblown, but in this situation, he's the one holding all the cards, all the authority. Mm -hmm. And so he's saying, okay, as a presider, I can operate in this way, and then as the pastoral figure, I can operate in these other ways, and I can fill these gaps, and I can be everything to you. And there's, it's a, fundament, a fundamental lack of understanding about this is a conciliar body. The main character is not the presider, not the bishop. It is mm -hmm. the council, and they get to decide what business they do and how they do it. And if you're imagining that you can plug these two big holes as a person, you're sucking up all the air in the room. It's it's not how a council is designed to act. So coming back to your idea, I think you're totally right. There needs to be a parliamentarian who's hired to be a dispassionate person. And then fine, let the bishop have his personal investment and push people, and not coercively, but lovingly, fine, that's his prerogative, but to fill both roles and act as though that's acceptable, I think shows a real lack of discernment. Yeah. yeah. Okay, let's um, go back to DePaulo's argument, or uh, article. So uh, we've, we've already covered everything up till now, I think. When he finally put the budget up for a vote, delegates lined up at the mics to make motions, ask points of order, we're calling adjourned session to have time for reflection and debate. Amid the parliamentary tangle, Scholl abruptly ended debate a few minutes before 10 a.m., declaring the conference had run out of time because preparations had to be made for the scheduled 10.30 ordination service. Murmurs and catcalls emanated from the assembly, including one loud voice, clearly audible, even on the church video recording, recording shouting, this is why people are leaving your church. So here's that clip. All that want to have a standing count vote, please raise your hand. All those opposed, please raise your hand. <laughs> Friends, we are at the end of our time. We are going to uh, have an adjourned session to... Uh... <laughs> wow. He doesn't even respond to it. I, no. I watched it a lot. He doesn't even respond. He just goes on. Well, and why even ask for a vote if you're just going to, uh, like... Well, they were they were figuring out how it was they were going to follow up on all this, and the whole thing was just falling apart. I, I wish I could see a camera on the floor of how people voted with their hands or standing yeah. up. I forget yeah. there. But, yeah, he's, he's just trying to... They've run out of time. They spent the whole first day talking about feelings, random feelings, Second day, him shoehorning in all his legislative agenda. And then spending an hour just on his strategic plan. Yeah. Like. Yeah, just talking. Yeah. And then, poor time management. Well. And, and it doesn't help. And just to, to, for, to, to play devil's advocate, and, uh, people in the conference obviously hadn't looked over things. Um, they hadn't really gotten everything together beforehand. Um, people were getting up and talking about random stuff when they all could have like gotten together and said, okay, we're going to do this. This is what we're going to do. Um, these are the motions we're going to put forward. Um, and this is how we're going to vote on everything rather than just getting there and then hearing everything last second and being like, Oh, I don't like that. We need to discuss this. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know how late they put out all of the information beforehand, but they should have had it for at least a little while. Yeah. And, uh, 
I mean, if, if this is a connectional body, like you're supposed to be in connection with the other members of the body, not like it shouldn't be just a family reunion every time you, you get together. It, it, you mean you should be interacting with these people mm-hmm. frequently, um, not just once a year. Yeah. Or it's not a connectional body. Like, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's make sure to link to my bitter medicine episode where I, I preach on yeah. that for a bit. Because, I mean, so surely there's enough blame to go around. Right. Surely there, there are plenty of pastors and laity that, okay, so like an Oklahoma annual conference, there needed to be a, a, a group conversation about disaffiliation, why it's going on, mm-hmm. all that. We were not prepared to do that. The annual conference staff was not going to facilitate that because yeah. it's not in their interest. The laity network was not in place. Yeah, there was there was no connectional infrastructure outside of the direct control of the staff of the annual conference, so we could not, in a connectional manner, uh, share information. It's been a frustration all the way along. There should be, I mean, uh, when the staff insinuates itself into the middle of all the connectional relationships, that's a problem. That that really makes it so that conference staff can easily manipulate a vote by keeping people ignorant and in the dark. Yeah, but and, it, and if you if you're just allowing the conference staff to do everything and put the motions forward and select all the stuff that they want to do. And you're just there to mm-hmm. vote yes on rubber it, then, stamp it. Yeah. Then yeah. what do you expect? Yeah. What that's, expect? and that's the culture in the vast majority of annual. I'm not familiar with one annual conference that really expects a transparent financial report. Yeah. Uh, that reviews all the materials in the pre-conference, uh, journal. I mean, this is something that, as I said, there's plenty of blame to go around. Well, that's one thing I was surprised about when I that, that was the first annual conference that I'd been to here in Oklahoma, mm-hmm. um, and they just didn't want to talk about the budget at all. They mm-hmm. didn't want to like have anything to do with it. Everybody was just ready to go home. Mm-hmm. It was I think it was on a Saturday, or and, and there was a football game or something. It was like <laughs> they were, they were ready to just like push it through, no discussion, yeah. nothing. Like all all they were trying to put forward is like, hey, uh, you guys need to have a little bit more transparency. That was that was really it. Mm-hmm. And everybody's like, no, we. Trust them; they're good to go. Uh huh. Yeah, and I, that's not particular to Oklahoma. There's a yeah. lot of clergy, in particular, that just say, "Hey, I'm here to just talk about Jesus, all the dollars and cents and policies." And you do that. Let's just worship. Let's let's talk. And then year by year, things get worse and worse. And why is this getting worse? Yeah. You know, well, it's because you're not participating in the council effectively. One, I mean, there's many reasons, but that's that's one of them. So, I, I you know, I. I this is one of the things that I hope is different about the Global Methodist Church. Yeah. There are some things that I just hope we don't do because it can't be done well by a council, so let's just not. There are other things that if we're going to do, I hope that um, either we do it just better when we're together or we um, have ongoing open-door, open meetings where everybody's included so that when they all get together and say, I don't know anything about this, the, the response is, you've had 11 months to be a part of these conversations. Right. If you're if you're going to leave this body and then go into the Global Methodist Church and not change anything, what do you think is going to happen at the Global Methodist Church? Right. It's going to turn into the UMC 2.0. Yeah. Yes. Fix the stuff now. Yeah. Like that's come together. Yeah, do the hard work. I mean, take joy in connectionalism. Take joy yeah. in administering your new annual conference, work collaboratively, have a shared vision. Otherwise, I mean, I Part that's uh, part of me is high debt, and then part of me really likes an autocrat. You know, John Wesley and Francis Asbury were not bringing to the council saying what what should we do with the budget. They were just doing what they wanted with the budget, right. and they were of such uh, integrity that everybody's like, yeah. When, Those when were, annual yeah, conference, exceptional people. Yeah, 
and we need to have exceptional people. Like right. that, that's that's the problem is we've we've lowered the bar. We've got just a bunch of dysfunctional bureaucrats at the top, or I say we, the United Methodist Church does, and then it doesn't work. If if you're going to have autocratic leadership that forces things through, you've got to have exceptional personalities doing it. But mm-hmm. I mean. Uh, I would not identify <laughs> the current set of United Methodist bishops with anything approximating Asbury and, yeah. and Wesley. So I, uh, if, you, if you can't have exceptional personalities at the top, you have to have exceptionally good conciliar government, which they also don't have, which is why it's falling apart. And so, yeah, let's GMC not be UMC 2.0. That's, that's a serious prayer concern. Um, DePaulo, in his article, he had a, a whole paragraph on uh, Amy Banca, who, who did that personal privilege speech, so we'll skip after that. After the reading of the appointments, the ordination service was held, Bishop Scholl himself acting as preacher. Four persons were ordained and one commission, not nearly enough to take the places of the 13 elders and deacons who retired. Thus ended one of the most demoralizing conference sessions we have ever experienced. Five churches were closed and five more approved for disaffiliation. No budget was passed, and a number of resolutions were never considered before time ran out. The atmosphere of distrust, even disgust, was almost palpable within a body that seemed most both dispirited and exhausted. When the conference was formed in 1969 from the merger of the old Methodist and the EUB conferences in the region, it boasted well over 600 churches. By the end of the 2023 session, there were about 370, and that includes 50 congregations seeking an exit through a pending lawsuit. By the way, exact statistics are hard to publish, establish since we have not had a conference journal published since 2020. Of those 370 churches, oh, yeah, in that document, that Q&A that we're going to link, he says uh, in it flatly, they have not been doing conference finances the way that GCFNA stipulates ever. And they're just now coming into compliance with GCFA standards. How it is that that happens, and there's not some kind of lawsuit, is beyond. Yeah, me. like what? What are these? What are the people in the conference doing? They're not, are they yeah. not paying attention? Like, <laughs> yeah, you, <laughs> you're giving them their your money, and then you're just ah, they've got it. And year after year, they don't, and nobody's like, maybe we should check on that. Exactly. Yeah, this is really. I mean, I think that's scandalous. Of those 370 churches, we were told during the strategic plan presentation that only 18% to 25% of them are considered vital. According to the uh, GCAH website, EPA has lost nearly 27% of its membership between 2012 and 2021, and attendance fell during that same period by a whopping 59.7%. None of this looks good. The decline in eastern Pennsylvania is a microcosm of trends in the larger United Methodist Church in the U.S., lack of unity on core doctrinal issues, clerical defiance of the Book of Discipline, administrative incompetence, and a driven, uh, agenda-driven Episcopal leadership have pushed a once-great institution to the brink of collapse. No wonder the GCFA recently reported a one-year loss of more than 570,000 members in 2021, and more than 5,000 U.S. churches have already left the UMC through disaffiliation. God have mercy on the United Methodist Church. What an article. Yeah. I think that 5,000 numbers up to 7,000 now of, of churches that have disaffiliated. Well, yeah, yeah, and I, that that number of members that uh, have left is probably way Well, that was just in 2021. 
So yeah. Well, like, yeah, and then what de- what defines membership? Because a lot of these places you're just blowing up their their membership numbers to to make it look like it, and then their actual attendance is a quarter of that of the actual members. Yes. So yeah, that's an undercounted number for sure. So yeah, it's we've got a situation now where there are a lot of bishops and conference officials writing and saying, okay, we got rid of the bad apples now. Time for growth, time for, and and people like DiPaolo and me, probably you, would look at the stats and go, no, no, you can't put the same people who ruined this in charge of the solution. Yeah. You know, so it's, I think what they want to do is blame those who are leaving for the failure when actually it's it's the ones. Oh, well, yeah, that's what they're going to try to do. And in a couple yeah. of years, they're just going to collapse completely. And it's like, oh. <laughs> Those those mean conservatives divided us, and there was just so much irreparable harm that was done. We just could never come back from. Yeah, it. I, there's. I keep waiting for a moment of reckoning where the denial. So I think Shoal is a good example. Is a good like personification of how the UMC has behaved generally, because the grassroots of the denomination has conservative sensibilities. Is not wanting to be on the the innovative uh, far left. Uh, of the culture has has traditional understandings of sex and marriage, the role of government, uh, abortion, um, and yet the elites that have taken over have continually, in the name of these people, with the budget of these people, worked against the ethics and and identity of these people. And so, um, you know, Scholl shoehorning these things through, acting like he's interested in dialogue, but then. Uh, giving people language, hopping in and out of uh, his functions, all of that is is emblematic of the larger United Methodist or mainline. Yeah, not even United Methodist. There's a mainline Christian phenomenon in America where far left cultural elites took over the levers of power and then used all that musculature to go to drag people in a direction they didn't want to go. Mm-hmm. I'm waiting on them to finally acknowledge. Yeah. <laughs> that's what we tried to do. <laughs> that's what we're doing. And I don't know why I think they're going to do that. Um, but until until they do that, the only other thing they can do is these awful conservatives just ruined it all, you know? Yeah. It's a very dissatisfying, you know, as all this wreckage is around you and you're going, it's somebody else's fault. Yeah. You know? Open your eyes. Like, just a little self-reflection would be nice. <laughs> like, for everybody. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So the, I mean, to to imagine that conser- you know, my bitter. I'm going to keep pushing towards my bitter medicine series. If you imagine that conservatives are faultless in all this, you're totally wrong. I mean, they're complicit in the degradation of all of this. Um, but even so, yeah, it's, it, it's not just the the more progressive people that are not being in connection or not paying attention to what's going on in the conference or. Informing be, their congregation of what's going on, like if this is all on the the clergy, like I mean, the church is made up of more than just the clergy. I mean, you've got the the lay people too that aren't aware at all. Like, I mean, there's a lot of people that weren't aware of of most of the stuff that was going on until people put videos out. Like we put videos out specifically so the lay people can know what's going on. And we hear from lay people yeah. every day saying, I had no idea, yeah. thank you so much. Yeah. You know, So pastors have really failed to give good information. Conference staff have failed to give it's, good It's another one of those things. Well, we put these people in leadership and we just trust them and then they can they can do all the hard work and we'll just you know show up on Sundays and Wednesdays maybe. Right. So it's yeah, just, it's just like, not... In, in the United States of America in particular, that's such a scandalous way to be because the whole American project is based on an informed populace. Yeah. 
So to have a whole populace that said, ah, we don't need to be informed anymore, when clearly, I mean, the signs, I mean, we got the wreckage all around us of what happens when we don't stay informed and active. So anyway, uh, if you felt burned by any of this, good. It's good for you. Um, there's, there's clearly a response that's needed here. If you're still in the United Methodist Church, then, you know, just do your best to push leadership in the right direction and have good, responsible conversation throughout the year and foster good connectionalism between your church and others. If you're outside of the United Methodist Church, make sure that whatever body you join is not guilty of the same sins. So, TJ, anything else to close out this whole series? I don't think so. I think that's a good way to end it. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.